series on what is a healthy church. We're kind of looking at that, breaking that down. This, uh, all this information comes from a book um, by Mark Dever um, entitled The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. I would encourage you to, to pick that up. And if you've been listening to sermons, then you'll already know what the book says. But um, that's, that's what a lot of this uh, comes from. I've, I've tried to make mention of that here and there, so just want to encourage you in that direction. This morning, we want to talk about the idea of discipline. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says this from the English Standard Version this morning. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be so to you, or let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Last week, we spent some time talking about church membership. What does that look like? Um, I made a copy for you of our current church covenant, as well as a, a covenant I would like to see us eventually adopt. We talked about what it means to sign a covenant, to covenant together in membership flowing directly out of our understanding of being a member of a church must be our understanding of church discipline. Membership in a church is intended to draw a boundary line around the church and marking the church off from the rest of the world. Discipline should help the church stay true to the very things that are the cause for drawing the boundary line in the first place. In a church, it is to give meaning to church membership. It is an essential mark of a healthy church. Church discipline gets to the heart of the question, are we to live as Christians on our own or do our obligations to one another only involve encouraging one another positively or do they include a responsibility to speak honestly to other people's faults, their shortcomings, their departures from scripture or specific sins? Does our responsibilities before God ever including making such matters public? So as we've done previously, we're going to look at some questions this morning. Is all church discipline negative? What is it? What does the Bible say about it? How have past Christians handled it? Would our church ever do such a thing? And why we should practice it and what happens if we refuse to practice it? So first, let's see this. Is all discipline negative? This is an excellent question to ask because it sounds like um, it must be a negative topic. In fact, we rarely think of discipline in a positive way. Uh, it's rare for people, oh, let's, let's uh, get excited about getting discipline. You know, we don't, we don't get excited about that. Um, when we hear the word discipline, we think of correction, or some, some of you perhaps um, immediately think of a spanking. Um, we think of our parents when we were little kids bringing discipline, and if we're honest, we all would admit that we need discipline in our lives, that we need some form of shaping. None of us are perfect, nor are we completed projects. We perhaps need inspiration and nurturing and healing. Maybe we even need correcting in our lives to be challenged or even broken. Whatever the method, let's at least admit that we need discipline in our life. Let's not pretend like we are just as we should be and that we're a completed, finished work of God. So once we admit that we all need discipline, it's easier to see that discipline is often positive or what we refer to as formative discipline. It is like the stake that helps the tree 
grow in the right direction. It's like the braces on the teeth that straighten them. It is like repeated instruction to keep your mouth closed when you are eating or regular reinforcement to choose your words wisely or carefully. Formative discipline refers to those things that shape us as you and I grow emotionally and physically and mentally and spiritually. It is the basic shaping that takes place in our families as well as in our churches. So when we're in school, we're taught by books. And when we're in the church, we are taught by sermons and by classes. And all of this is part of positive, formative discipline. So discipline is not always negative. Now let's see what it is. What is church discipline? When some people hear the term church discipline, they become defensive. They might even say something like, Didn't Jesus say, Judge not lest ye be judged? Which, interestingly, has become the most quoted verse, I believe, for people. We hear that verse all the time, even by non-Christians. Judge not, lest ye be judged yourself. And it would be true that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, Jesus does forbid judging in one sense. And we're going to consider that later on in the sermon. However, we must recognize that elsewhere in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus clearly tells us to rebuke others for sin, even to do so publicly if needed, Matthew 18, 15 through 17, which we just read. So whatever Jesus means by not judging in Matthew chapter 7, he obviously does not rule out the kind of judging that he mandates for us to do in Matthew chapter 18. So we must remember that God himself is judge, but that he does intend others to judge just in a lesser sense of judging. For example, he's given the state a responsibility to judge in Romans chapter 13. We are told to judge ourselves in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and Hebrews chapter 4 and 2 Peter chapter 1. We are also specifically told to judge one another in the church. Again, this is not the way that God judges, but we're told to judge one another within the body of Christ. The words of Jesus in Matthew 18 and in Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. And other passages clearly teach us the church is to exercise judgment within itself. So it's no surprise that the church is given instruction to judge. After all, if we can't say how a Christian should not live, how can we declare how a Christian should live? If you can't say this is not what you do, how can you say this is what you do? Now, I want you to stop and think about something because what I'm about to say goes against every church growth strategy ever invented. But here it is. We need to do a better job of excluding people. We need to do a better job of excluding people. Now, some people are going to, would, would freak out at such a saying. They're, oh, I can't believe that, that you would say such a thing. What I mean is that it should be harder to join the church. There, there needs to be a distinction between the world and and the church, thereby showing the world what it means to be a Christian. So the world should be able to look inside the church and say, oh, that's what it means to be a Christian. If someone who claims to be a follower of Christ refuses to live the life that they should be living, we need to follow what Paul proclaimed and for the glory of God and the good of that person, exclude them from membership in the church. And so discipline should first appear in how the church takes in church members. Now let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. He says, I wrote to you, this is Paul, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would not go out of the world. Notice that Paul drew a clear distinction between the church and the world. The question is, do we make the same distinction? Do we assume that the church is different from the world? We're not saying that the church is full of perfect people because obviously we're not. We're all a bunch of sinners. But do we assume that there's some kind of difference between the lives of those in the church 
and those that are in the world. You see, Paul makes a sharp contrast. Membership in a local church should be reflective of true membership in the body of Christ. And so when examining new members, we must consider whether those who are under consideration for membership in the church are are living lives that are are Christ-honoring lives. Do we fully grasp the seriousness of the commitment that we are making to them when they join the church? And have we properly communicated to them the seriousness of the commitment that they are making to us as a church. If we are more careful about how we recognize and receive new members, we will have less occasion to practice corrective church discipline. Before moving on, let me give you the definition of church discipline in its narrow sense. It is the act of excluding someone who professes to be a Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper for serious, unrepentant sin, sin they refuse to let go of. That's what it is. It's saying, no, you can no longer be a member of our church because you refuse to let go of serious sin in your life. And therefore, we don't believe that you really know Christ as your Savior. What does the Bible say about it. What does the Bible tell us about church discipline? There are lots of passages that deal with it. I want to look at eight of them quickly this morning. Hebrews 12, 1 through 14. In this passage, it's looked at as positive, and it reveals that God himself disciplines us. Let's look at it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when when reproved by him for the lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline if you are left without discipline in which all have participated then you are illegitimate children and not sons besides this we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them shall we not much more be subject to the fathers uh, the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them but he disciplines us for good that we may share his holiness for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it therefore Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight your paths for your feet so that what is lame may now be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The point of the message, of the passage, is that God himself disciplines us and as we will see, he commands us to do the same with each other. The local congregation has a specific responsibility. So let's look at the verses we read to start off the passage or the the message, Matthew 18, 15 through 17. This and 1 Corinthians 5 are the most cited passage in dealing with church discipline. The question being, how do you respond when someone sins against you? Someone sins against me, how should I respond to them? Do you tell them off? Do you, do you say, well, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind and I'm never talking to them again? Do you build resentment in your heart and bitterness and, and so that you're actually bitter at people within your own church and you're just bitter towards them and you can't stand them and you're not going to talk to them and yada, 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 yada? Here's what Jesus said. Let's read it again. If your brother sins against you, 
Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Alone. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he sins against you, okay? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So why do you take people with you so that when you say, hey, brother so-and-so, hey, sister so-and-so, this is the sin that we're confronting in your life. Now you have witnesses that listen in on it. If they refuse to listen to them, then you tell it to the church. And if they still refuse to listen, even to the church, then you let them be as a Gentile and a tax collector. According to Jesus, that's how we're to deal with disagreements with fellow believers. And that is precisely what the early Christians did. We see this laid out for us in a letter from Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11. This passage of scripture is the longest, best known of ones dealing with church-specific discipline. Someone in the Corinthian church was living in an immoral lifestyle. Let's see what Paul says about this man living in immorality. He says this, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the, all the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, so anyone who calls himself a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a person. Now, why did Paul say all of that? Did he hate the offender? No. But this man was deceived. He thought he could be a Christian and deliberately disobey the Lord. Perhaps he thought, and the church allowed him to believe, that there was nothing wrong with him having his father's wife. And Paul makes it clear that such a person is deluded in their thinking. They're not thinking straight, and to serve such a person and to glorify God, you need to reveal to them that their profession of faith is actually a false profession in light of the life that they're living. There are other Bible passages where Paul shed some light on how the process of loving confrontation should occur. Galatians 6.1. That's just one verse, but it's important to our thinking on church discipline. Paul gives instruction on how we are to restore someone. He says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you be tempted. Paul shows concern with with what just uh, has has been not with just what has been done in a difficult situation, but also how it is to be done. Second Thessalonians three verses six through fifteen. Church in Thessalonica, it would seem that some people were being lazy and they're not they're not doing anything, and to make things worse, they're defending their inactivity by saying, "Oh well, it's God's will that I'm lazy." Paul said it wasn't. This is what he says. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness 
and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without praying for or paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey that which we say in this letter, take note of the person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. 1 Timothy 1.20 Again, Paul writing to Timothy. Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus. Paul makes a reference to some who had made shipwreck of their faith. And look what Paul says should be done in 1 Timothy 1, verse 20. Paul says, Among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Paul's continuing his letter to Timothy. And he writes about what to do with church leaders who are caught in sin. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of everyone so that the rest may stand in fear. Titus chapter 3 verses 9 through 11. Some people in the church where where Titus was a pastor were causing division over issues that really were not important issues at all. I'm sure that no church has ever experienced that in today's time. Issues over issues that really aren't important. You ever have that happen? This is what Paul says. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. If we take all of these passages together, church, We can see that God cares about our understanding and our living out of his truth. He cares about how you and I live as Christians. And all kinds of situations are mentioned in these verses. There are legitimate areas for our concern. There are areas in which we as a church should exercise discipline. Plus, We would do well to notice how serious the consequences are that Paul mandated. Did you catch all those terms he was using? Put this man out of fellowship. Hand this one over to Satan. Do not associate with this person. Don't even eat with that person. Keep away from them and take special note of him. Do not associate with him so that he may feel shame. Hand them over to Satan. Rebuke them publicly. Have nothing to do with them. Strong words. Does this mean that Paul's just some like unusually severe dude walking around just looking like he's like always ready to just kick people out of churches? No. What did Jesus himself say about the person who refused to listen even to the church? Jesus said, they refuse to listen even to the church treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector that's what the bible says about church discipline now let's see how has church discipline been handled by past christians some people will say well well why would we do this has this been done in the past so we've seen that the bible gives clear instruction this is church discipline how did the early church do it so in past times there was quite a bit of church discipline that took place. In fact, disciplinary actions were a substantial part of business meetings for Baptist churches. This is what one Greek scholar said several years ago. The abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. Two generations ago, the churches were applying discipline 
in a vindictive and arbitrary fashion that justly brought it into disruptive or disrepute. Today, the pendulum has swung to the other extreme. Discipline is almost wholly neglected. It is time for a new generation of pastors to restore this important function of the church to its rightful significance and place in the church life. It seems like corrective discipline has all but disappeared from our churches. Yet pastors in the 1800s considered their most important task to be preaching and church discipline. In fact, pre-Civil War days, Southern Baptists excommunicated nearly 2% of their membership every single year. 2% of their membership. So let's just say that, you know, let's just pretend like we had 100 members, right? So we would be excommunicating 20 members a year. You think that would cause major problems, right? You'd be like, well, those churches, boy, they must have really struggled. The churches grew. In fact, the churches grew at twice the rate of their population growth. So when people say, well, if you, if you discipline people in your church, that's, that's anti-evangelistic. Well, that's unfounded. It's not anti-evangelistic. Jesus intended for our lives to back up our words. When our lives fail to back up our words, evangelism gets injured. And we've clearly seen this in the American culture. Undisciplined churches have actually hurt the cause of Christ, have made it hard for people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and for new life to be found in Christ. What happened to our churches? Why did churches stop practicing any kind of discipline? Honestly, we don't know, but some have speculated that, among other things, uh, that a lot of other things just gained our attention. So churches began to be concerned with social order, less concerned for church discipline. They started to focus on reforming society. And at that point, we saw a dramatic drop-off. So the church would get involved in things like the temperance movement. And they would try to get the society to adopt the moral norms of the church at large. And as Baptists learned to reform the society around them, they forgot how they had reformed themselves. And church discipline then presupposed a dichotomy between the society and the kingdom of God. And however, the more that society became purified, the less they felt the need for church discipline that separated the church from the world. And this is where you have the beginnings of what we call cultural Christianity, where the culture and the church were almost identical. It's no longer the case anymore, but for some it is still the case. But they were almost identical. You could could see that the church and the culture were, were real close to one another. Greg Will, professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said this, After the Civil War, observers began to lament that church discipline was foundering, and it was. It declined partly because it became more burdensome in larger churches. Young Baptists refused in increasing members to submit to discipline for dancing, and the churches shrank from excluding them. Urban churches pressed by the need for large buildings and the desire for refined music and preaching subordinate church discipline to the task of keeping the church solvent. Many Baptists shared a new vision of the church, replacing the pursuit of purity with a quest of efficiency. They lost the resolve to purge their churches of straying members. No one publicly advocated the demise of discipline. No Baptist leader arose to call for an end to congregational censures. No theologians argued the discipline was unsound in principle or practice. It simply faded away. As if Baptists had grown weary of holding one another accountable. And so as Baptist churches in the 19th century began to retreat from church discipline, it changed the work of the pastor altogether. Now his role is more public. Before, people thought the work of a pastor was done mainly in private, private conferences with families and individuals. However, what occurred more and more was series of meetings and entertainment and passion calls for immediate decisions, and the pastor was called only to deal with the most severe cases of church discipline. The church became less and less involved with the people problems, And often, they were unaware of them. The church stopped being a community that covenanted together for accountability. And the pastor became the sole person to deal with only a few cases that might cause public embarrassment for the church. And so all these changes, boundaries became blurred. 
pastor's roles confused, and furthermore, any distinction between the church and the world was lost. And it became a detriment to evangelism and the church. All evangelical churches in the past practiced some form of discipline. In 1561, Reformed Christians spoke of it in a Belgic confession. This is what they said. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised and punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ Acknowledge as the holy head of the church hereby the church may certainly be known from which no man has a right to separate himself. Well, would our church ever practice such a thing? Would First Baptist Church in Washington, Illinois ever do church discipline? Sometimes church members are in shock when they hear that churches should do that. They even sometimes will say something like this, our church would never do that. And sometimes it's followed up with, would we? Right? Our church would never do that. That just proves how easy it is for, to forget what used to be common practice. Let me read to you from what our church says concerning church discipline. This is Article 13 of our bylaws. Should any unhappy indifference arise between members, the agreed member shall follow in tender spirit the rule given by our Lord in the 18th chapter of Matthew, if a member's life and conduct are a gross breach of the covenant, public scandal, or not in accordance with our statement of faith in such a way that the member hinders the ministry influence of the church in the community, the deacon shall endeavor to resolve the conflict. And if such efforts fail, they shall report the case to the church. If the church votes to entertain a complaint, which must be in writing, it shall appoint a reasonable time and place for a hearing, notify the person in question thereof, and furnish him or her with a copy of the charges. At such hearing, the accused member may ask for aid and counsel from any member. If the accused member is not present at the time appointed or gives satisfactory reason, the church may proceed in his or her absence. The spirit of Christian kindness and forbearance shall pervade all such proceedings. But should an adverse decision be reached, the church may proceed to admonish or declare the offender to be no longer in the membership of the church. In case of grave Difficulty. The church will be ready, if requested, to ask advice of an acceptable council from sister churches of the Metro Baptist Peoria Association or members from the Illinois Baptist State Associations. Personally, I think that we could expand it more because we do not provide any cause in our statement that would enact church discipline. And that perhaps our policy should make it clear what it is to warrant church discipline in the first place. In any case, we do have something, whether or not it has ever been put into practice, I don't know. I've never found anything in our history. I'm under the impression that in accordance with the scriptures, that we should practice church discipline. And that it should include such things as non-attendance in church. And so the question is, why? Why should we ever do that? Let me ask you another question. Why do we exist? How do, why do we exist as a church? How does, how does any church know if they're fulfilling their purpose? How do we know, how does our church gauge if things are going well? If, if we were to sit down and have a little church meeting and say, hey, how do you think things are going in our church? What would you use to gauge whether things were going well or not? Some people would say, well, if, if we are gaining new members, things are going well. If our church is growing, things are going well. That must mean that they're a good church. However, that's a mistake. It's a mistake that many make. O.S. Guinness writes this. One Florida pastor with a 7,000-member megachurch expressed the fallacy, well, I must be doing right or things wouldn't be going so well. So let's take that church. That's mentioned in, in the example. I must be doing right. I have 7,000 members. I must be doing right or things wouldn't be going so well. It's a huge church. It's growing numerically. By our standards, we'd say, well, that must be a good church. 
People like it. Music is good. Entire families can be found within its membership. And the people are welcoming. They have all kinds of exciting programs. People are enlisted to help. It has all of the appearances of a good church. However, the church, in trying to look like the world to win the world, does not display the distinctively holy characteristics that are taught in the New Testament. The church that appears healthy is actually spiritually sick without an immune system to check and guard against wrong teaching and wrong living. So just imagine people in this church. They're in maybe a recovery group or they're hearing sermons about brokenness or a sermon about grace. And they're being comforted in their sins, but they are never, ever, ever confronted with their sin. Imagine these people who are made in God's image, 7,000 members of a church, and they're lost because no one ever corrects them and tells them that they're sinners in need of a Savior, and they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. So you can have 7,000 members, and a huge portion of the members of this church don't even know Jesus. And rather than them being led to heaven, they are being duped into a false Christianity and they are headed straight for hell. Can you imagine such a church? We don't have to imagine it. It exists all across America. It's not easily, easy to faithfully practice church discipline when so many churches are unfaithful. It's hard enough to try to establish the culture of meaningful membership in a church. In fact, I know there will be people that will get angry for trying to develop meaningful membership, for trying to say, here's some standards of church membership that we are going to hold one another accountable to and covenant together with. I know that there will be people that, that will just get so upset by such a thing. But I don't see any other way for us to be faithful to what Jesus taught. We must try, and while we are doing so, we must pray that God will give us a spirit of sufficient love and wisdom. Let's just be real honest. The state of most churches in America is not good. Paul reminded the Christians in Rome, Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the, says the Lord. Corrective church discipline is never to be done out of a mean spirit but out of a loving spirit for the offending party and the member of the church individually, and ultimately our love for God and the desire to see restoration. Corrective church discipline does not ha have the mistake, uh, mistaken notion that we have the final word from God on a person's eternal destiny. We practice church discipline, or we should practice church discipline, because we want to see good come out of it. Earlier I mentioned Matthew 7, 1, right? Judge not, lest ye be judged yourself. You've probably heard that verse thrown around. If you've ever shared the gospel with someone or you've ever said anything about someone's lifestyle or their sin, they've probably quoted that verse to you. Judge not, lest ye be judged yourself. You can't judge me. We also have to look at verse 2, by the way. For with the judgments you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Today, anytime church discipline or when any kind of criticism is, criticism is mentioned, people will immediately quote Matthew 7, 1 and say something like, you can't judge me. Listen, Jesus is not forbidding us from being critical, but instead is forbidding us from doing that which is not in our authority to do in the first place. We know that personal revenge is wrong and final justice is right. It's wrong for us to ask people to measure up to our preferences, right? We don't go around saying, you need to measure up to my preference, my wish, my whim. That's not what we do. No church should ever do that. Here's my preference. You need to measure up to it. That's not what we're talking about. However, it's completely appropriate for God to require his creatures to reflect reflect his holy character we don't have the ability to condemn finally but god does there's coming a day when god will ask his followers to pronounce his judgment however awesome wonderful and terrible it may be on his creation first corinthians 6 2 tells us that some churches ask their members to covenant together to not only promote their own holiness but also the holiness of their brothers and sisters in christ I believe a misunderstanding of Matthew 7 has only provided a shield for sin and has worked to prevent congregations from truly knowing one another like they used to. 
I believe we live such private lives because of Matthew 7 and a misrepresentation. So we don't want to do anything that someone might say something about us. And when they do say something about us, when they do confront us, we, well, you can't judge me. And then quickly, right? Quickly, there's no accountability in the church. Quickly, we quit getting into one another's lives. We do our own thing, and we don't know anybody outside of this building. We come in, hey, brother so-and-so, hey, sister so-and-so, good to see you, good to see you. I haven't seen you all week. I see you on Sunday, and that's the only time I ever see you. I don't see you in town. I've never been in your house. I don't have a relationship with you, but it sure is good to see you on Sunday. And we don't invite people into our private lives. And when we do, and they say something, you can't judge me. That's our attitude. And we quickly break all relationships. Yes, a holier-than-thou judgmental attitude is an indicator of a heart that's ignorant of its debt to God's grace and mercy. But the same people who are concerned with sin in their lives or in the lives of those they love are not, not exhibiting the holy love that Jesus displayed. And that should mark all of his disciples. We do not exclude someone from church membership because we know their final state will be hell. Rather, we exclude someone out of concern that the way they are living is displeasing to God. We don't discipline because we want to get back at someone. I'm going to show them. i got to get back at them. We discipline because we love God and we love the person. We want to see restoration happen in their lives. I want to give you five reasons why we need to practice church discipline quickly this morning. Five reasons for the good of the person being disciplined. So we do it for their good. The man in Corinth, for whatever reason, thought that God approved of him having an affair with his father's wife. The people in Galatia thought it was fine that they were trusting in their own works instead of Christ. Alexander and Hymenaeus thought it was all right for them to blaspheme God. None of these people were in good standing of God. Out of love for these people, we should want to see church discipline practice. We don't want to see people hardened in their sins and lulled to sleep. We don't want to live that kind of life individually nor as a church. We want to call them out for their own good. Number two, for the good of Christians seeing the danger of sin. Paul told Timothy that if the leader sin, he should be rebuked publicly. Now that doesn't mean that as the pastor is preaching and you see me do something that's wrong, that you stand up in the middle of service and say, Hey, pastor, that was wrong. I got a problem. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. What it does mean is that when a leader commits a serious sin, especially one that they have not repented of, it needs to be brought up publicly. So others will take warning as they see the serious nature of sin. Number three, for the health of the church as a whole. Paul pleads with the believers in Corinth. He tells them that they should not have boasted about having such toleration for sin. He rhetorically asks them, Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Yeast represents the unclean, spreading nature of sin. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, 8, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. At Passover, a lamb was and unleavened, or a lamb was used and unleavened bread was eaten. And Paul is telling the Corinthians that the lamb, which is Christ, has been slaughtered. And they, the Corinthian church, were to be the unleavened bread. They were to have no leaven of sin in them. They, as a whole entire church, were to be an acceptable sacrifice. This does not mean that discipline is the focal point of the church. It means that discipline should be something that happens and allows us to get on with our main task. Yes, there will be times that it is necessarily a, a consumed nature of the church, but it doesn't have to be the main task. Number four, for the corporate witness of the church. church. Church discipline is a powerful tool for evangelism, even if we think otherwise. People notice when our lives are different, especially when there's a whole community of people who li whose lives are different. We're not saying whose lives are perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But whose lives are marked by genuinely trying to love God and love one another. 
When churches are seen as trying to conform to the world, then our evangelistic task becomes more difficult. We become so like unbelievers that they have no questions that they want to ask us. They have nothing that they need answered because we are just like them. May we live our lives so that people have questions. Number five, for the glory of God is we reflect his holiness. The most compelling reason that I can think of for practicing church discipline is that it glorifies God. That is why we are alive, so that we should bring God glory. That's why the first line of our mission statement says, glorifying Jesus Christ. We should be consumed with the glory of God as humans. We're made to bear God's image and to carry his character to all of creation. That is why it's no surprise that throughout the Old Testament that God fashioned a people to bear his image. We're to be holy. It's not for our reputation, but for God's reputation. We're called to be the light of the world. Peter tells us to live such good lives that the pagans will see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. We're to be image bearers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves. By the way, men who practice homosexuality. Homosexuality is two words in the Greek right there in that verse. It's for the giver and the receiver of homosexual acts. If you want to talk about that, you can listen to my whole sermon over those verses, or I can talk to you about it later. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. From the very beginning, Jesus gave instructions to his disciples to teach people all that he had commanded. We are to reflect the holy nature of God. The picture of the church at the end of the book of Revelation is a picture of a glorious bride who reflects the character of Christ. It says, outside of the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Our lives are to be the display of God's character in the world. We can't sit and worry about what others think of us. We know that we should expect strong disapproval and perhaps even being persecuted for righteousness. But so far as lies within us, we're to live lives that commend the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people. Live for the glory of God. Our theology may explain church discipline, Our teaching and preaching may instruct on church discipline. Leaders can even encourage church discipline, but only the church can enforce it. Lastly, in closing, what if we don't practice it? What if we say, well, we don't don't need to do that? If a church refuses to practice any sort of church discipline, then they have to answer this question, what does it mean to be a church? Because this is about the nature of a church. Again, Greg Wills writes this. That to many Christians in the past, a church without discipline would hardly have counted as a church. So if we use that as our standard, a church without discipline would hardly have counted as a church. Would we be considered a church? John Dagg writes this. When discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. If we can't say what something is not, then how can we possibly say what it is? If we forfeit the ability to say what a Christian is not, we cannot meaningfully say what a Christian is. We're called to have lives that back up our profession of faith. We need to love each other. We need to hold each other accountable because all of us have times When our flesh desires to go in a way that's not consistent to what God has revealed to us in his scripture. And part of the way we love each other is by being honest and establishing relationships with one another. And speaking in love with each other. We need to love each other and we need to love those outside our church whom our witness affects. And we need to love God who is holy and who calls us not to bear his name in vain, but to be holy as he is holy. That's a tremendous privilege and a great responsibility. If we want to see our church 
healthy. If we want to see First Baptist Church healthy, we have to actively care for each other. We have to do that. That means we have to care what church membership is. That means we say, hey, we want to hold one another accountable to a standard. Here's our church covenant. Here's the standard that we're asking you to be held to. We're asking you to sign this. We're asking you to be a member of our church. This means that you're going to be held to this standard. And we have to point out problems when people's lives do not hold to the standard means we have to confront it all gets very practical when you get right down to it all this talk about a church all this talk about oh we're a church and oh we represent new life in christ and oh we talk about a commit a commitment in relationships and oh we talk about having a covenant it all needs to be very practical It can't just be something we say, but it must be something we do. So let me ask you this morning. If church discipline was considered the standard by which we were called a church, would we be a church? Something to think about. How do we practice it? Should we practice it? When should we practice it? Why should we practice it? Hopefully those questions were answered this morning. Our goal as we go through this is what is to be a healthy church. At the end we say, this is a healthy church. This is what we want to be. That's the goal. Maybe this morning, for the first time you heard something that makes sense for you. Maybe this morning you've You've, you've heard what our church stands for or kind of the direction we're trying to go and you've not been a member. And, and you say, well, you know what? I want to I be a member. I, I want to talk to somebody about that. I don't know how God uses his word to speak to your heart. He may have taken something I said and, and your life has moved to the point that you feel like you need to surrender your life to Christ for the first time. Maybe you've never done that. I don't know how God speaks because I'm not God. I trust that he takes his word and he pierces hearts and he speaks to them. And so if he's spoken to you, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that message this morning. I'm going to be standing down front. I'd love to grab your hand and, and talk with you or pray with you or whatever it is. If you, have, if you need to pray on your own, you can pray on your own. You can pray in your pew. You can talk to me after the service if that's what you want to do. But I want to give you that opportunity this morning. So here in a minute, we're going to sing a song and you're going to have that opportunity. Let's close with prayer.